The Lord be with you. Please be seated. So I want you to know that you're off the hook. I mean, I, nobody's made a mistake so far in the bulletin except I fall on my own sword. I was so excited about using the hymnals for a change and, and I got gobbled up in it. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as, as we are in a series right now, a 10-week series that may not go exactly 10 weeks in a row, but we are reminding ourselves of our catechism, of our days of confirmation. Today, this, for this 10 weeks, we're looking at Luther's small catechism, and we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Last week, we started at an unusual place. We started with the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Today, the catechesis for the day is from the fifth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. What does this mean, Luther says? We should fear and love God. It means we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body but help and support him in every physical way. Luther's explanation. How do we fear and love God in keeping the fifth commandment? Luther has some answers for us there as well. First, we fear and love God by not harming our neighbor. Harming includes murder, taking the life of someone without just cause, doing or saying anything that injures or endangers another person's life, harboring anger or hatred in our hearts, aborting the life of an unborn child, hating, despising, slandering other people or groups of people, such as in prejudice, or racism, and the like. Luther says we need to remember these things. God creates. God preserves. God protects all life. Human life is God's gift. The living but the unborn are persons in the sight of God from the moment of fertilization. So every human life is precious to God. We begin with our text. Fresh off a singing stinging renunciation of the leaders of God's people, the temple in Jerusalem on Monday and Tuesday of Holy Week, Jesus today doubles down on his adversaries. You will remember last week's parable, he saw, and we saw even more clearly, the stubborn, obstinate nature of people who, by their words and deeds, reject the Son of God. These religious leaders, Pharisees, elders of the church, were themselves doubling down. They were doubling down on their sinfulness. They were guilty of not following the fifth commandment, among other commandments. They were guilty of not following the law, not teaching the law, not following the law. They were to model the laws of God. They were hating. They were despising. They were slandering Jesus with disturbing regularity. And in the end, 
they killed him. They murdered Jesus. I want to go back to what Jesus said to these detractors, these hate-filled, hard-hearted religious leaders. Last week in the parable, right after he had had correctly answered a question about which one has done the will of the Father, which son did the will of the Father, and finally the the, the detractors, you remember, got it correct, didn't they? Yeah, the first one. How did Jesus respond then? He said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Did you think about what that means? Tax collectors and prostitutes, other people go in before you religious leaders. But he doesn't say you religious leaders can't go in, does he? He doesn't stop it there. He just drops off. The gates of the kingdom of heaven may still be open for those who turn from their sinful ways, repent, turn from impenitence to penitence. Even the priests, even the elders, even those who violated the fifth commandment. Jesus is offering a lifeline to them. The parable for today comes immediately after the one last week, the same day of the week. There's still time to be repentant, he is in fact saying. But there's not much time for those folks. Not much time because he's already given them how many chances over three years of a public ministry? How many opportunities did they have to believe him, to turn from their ways? Not much time because, in fact, right after telling this parable, Jesus told another story to the very same audience. And while that parable of the two sons and which one did the will of the Father was pointed right at those guys, the chief priests and the elders, it was critical of them. This parable of the tenets that he now relates to us today to hear, this is decidedly terminal. This is the end for those who do not turn. In graphic detail, reminiscent of the punishment laid upon many prophets that God sent for people who dared, these these prophets who dared to preach God's kingdom and preach the gospel and to warn people who were so rebellious. It's reminiscent of those people. And Jesus is now painting a very dark picture about the depth of of sin into which people will go. Jesus is speaking right now to his detractors. Let's get this clear today. He's talking to those people. He's not talking to the people of Israel. He's talking to the chief priests and the elders and the religious leaders of the church on this day. But 2,000 years later, these words are meant for people whose actions and whose behaviors, like they're self-reliant, or self-serving, or selfish. Those who believe somehow they have this casual, complacent attitude towards God and faith. To those who believe that their knowledge or somehow, much, somehow how much good they do, how much knowledge they have, how much wealth they possess, how much status they achieve, somehow, Somehow that's going to give them credit for eternity. 
Somehow they're going to earn a CD, a certificate of deposit for a place in heaven, that place that the Lord says in John 14, there are many rooms in my Father's house, and I go to prepare a place for you. I want one of those rooms, Jesus. Can you put that on a CD for me for later? Look at all the good that I'm doing here. Such errant thinking makes only for a bad investment, and it makes the bad investment even worse. Because it makes a certificate of deposit more of a certificate of disappointment. And without a course correction, without a humble, contrite, and penitent review of one's faith portfolio, that is, what is in your heart, it makes for a certificate of damnation. The chief priests and the Pharisees, if we have come to know them, are shining examples of such a faulty behavior, a misguided understanding of God's will for his people. And we should all take heed of their actions and their behaviors and the subsequent consequence for them. With that in mind, and given what is about to happen on Thursday and Friday of that Holy Week, it's not difficult to imagine and understand why Jesus is being so critical of his adversaries. But his warning of a broken future, of eternal bankruptcy in hell, is not a condemnation of his detractors' authority. They do have authority. It's not even a, 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 a knocking of their eternal, their wealth or their social status, or their knowledge. They're entitled to that by their positions, by their status. You see, Jesus is not doing anything about that. Jesus is attacking their heart, that hardened heart, that black heart that so often infiltrates even our lives. Stained with simple thoughts of entitlements, of special inheritances they are going to get because of their godly positions. Jesus is aiming at their eyes and their ears. Eyes that can't see their own sin, but is willingly justify and judge others' sinfulness. Eyes that see the Son of God with his power, witnessing his power, witnessing his authority, and still rejects him. Ears that have heard the will of God in Scripture, the very Scripture they teach. The very Scripture that is right now manifested in their faces, in that temple, in the person of the Messiah, the Son of God. It is especially troubling that these pillars of the community, who in the eyes of the people are producing good fruit, are actually producing only wild grapes. And they're offering them up as evidence of their faithful work toward eternal life. So Jesus gives them this parable that is even more devastating as it examines the ultimate consequence for those who continually reject God. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it built a tower and leased it to tenants, went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get fruit. 
And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other students, sentence, more than the first. And they did the same to them. And finally, he sent to them his son, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him. And we'll have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Very easy parable to figure out, isn't it? No hidden agenda here. It's very clear who's what. The master of the house is God. The master has given everything necessary to protect and nourish his vineyard. The vineyard is God's people. For they are to bear good fruit, fruits of faith, fruits from the abundant mercy that God gives. And since he's far away, the master, God, sends servants. Those servants are his messengers, the prophets, to check on the vineyard and to teach and to guide and to help. And they killed them. The tenants are the spiritually stubborn religious leaders, the hard-hearted ones who would not let go of what mistakenly thought they had grown or they had earned. And so they killed the servants. The master sent his own son, Jesus, certain that they will respect my son. But the son was a threat to the tenants. He was a threat to the Pharisees and the tribes and all the religious leaders. And they killed him as well. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. And yet they did just that. As in the previous parable, Jesus, after he gives them that parable, asks a question. It is, for sure, a set-up question. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? When the master, God, returns, what do you suppose he would do with those who thought they were once the owners, those tenants, those religious leaders, those who thought that they were storing up good fruit for a place in heaven? Did you notice how Jesus puts the chief priests and, and the elders and the Pharisees in a position where their answer is also their judgment on themselves. They replied, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. In their own words, by their own actions and deeds, those who continue to reject the Lord will face a harsh reality For them, there is no vineyard. There is only a graveyard. To bring home that point, Jesus uses the Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, that every living ear in shot would have heard that and understood that and remembered that text from Isaiah. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was God's doing? And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is sharing his own messianic foreshadowing here. 
he manifests that psalm. The stone God that the builders Israel rejected has become the cornerstone Jesus Christ. He reminds his audience that this was God's plan, his doing. You have no control over that. He also reminds us that God's works are always marvelous. But nothing so marvelous as to send his only son into the world. What the most marvelous work of all. Jesus answers those who reject the cornerstone. He says the kingdom of God will be taken from you. Those who kill the messenger, those who reject Jesus, those who murder the son will be excluded. You shall not murder. You will be excluded. Black and white. And yet all manner of killing continues to this day, doesn't it? You may have grown up with a thou shalt not kill. Modern times we put you shall not murder. It's semantics. Killing continues to this day. And it's not just carried out by someone with a weapon in a clinic, shoots a store person, or out on the street shooting someone with a gun. That's not all the killing that's going on. That's not all the murder. It's that physician in the clinic who specializes in taking the life of an unborn but living child. That's murder. Have you ever noticed how we measure, we track how many people are shot and killed every year? We can give you that data statistically right away. We can tell you how many millions of living beings unborn have been killed, and how many thousands and thousands die every year. But that's not all there is to killing. And if we were to get into the what Luther says is also about killing and murder, we could never keep track. There's not a number we could come up with to do this because we kill with our hearts. We kill with our tongues. We kill when we hate or when we show anger towards others. We don't count or otherwise measure those, do we? Can you imagine more cases of that than you could even count the, the $20, $30 trillion debt in our country? More times than that have we hated, have we despised, have we slandered, have we killed. So we don't keep track of that, right? That's not as serious as aborting a child. That's not as serious as killing somebody with a weapon. So we don't count that. But Jesus does. God counts it. And you can count on that. Because God knows what is in your heart. Even more than you do. The events that followed Jesus' dire warning to the detractors actually answered his own question because he was soon rejected. He was condemned and he was crucified. And yet in rejection, he accomplished the will of his Father. 
Out of the shadow of death, Jesus was exalted. And upon that cornerstone, the cornerstone that is his son, God built his church. The church is a place where hearts are fed, nourished, and we are prepared to bring forth the fruits of faith, the faith that God has given us such a blessed gift. The church is a place where we come and when we leave out of hate should come love. Out of despising should come mercy. Out of slander should come giving. Because out of death came life. God has called you to a life of service and fruitful action in whatever place and time and manner you have been chosen to live. And to do so with compassion and love and humble thankfulness and with a giving spirit. Not that somehow you may earn an inheritance or that you deserve a reward for your faithfulness. For what God has given you is a gift of grace. And not of your own doing, Paul reminds us. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let us never take that gift for granted. Let us be never complacent in our faith. Let us always, as Peter said, be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in us. And yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The repentant heart knows that God's love is shown not only in his law that convicts us, in our sinfulness, but also in the means of grace to which he demonstrates a love to us that is so deep that he would give up his son on the cross for our sins, for all of us. So let us not be content with the fact that we say today that we can understand that parable and the impact it's going to have on those Jewish leaders and anybody who rejected the Son of God. Let us just not walk out of here with an idea that we understand that. Because guess what? We are the vineyard. I am a tenant. Spiritual leaders are supposed to be good stewards of the gospel. We are to align the gospel, the church, and the cornerstone. We are to build on the foundation of his person and his saving work. And we are to produce good fruit to his glory. That is your calling in the vineyard. Because once we too were dead in our trespasses and sin, now we have a new life in Jesus. Let our hearts not give way to the temptations of this world. Rather, let us be confident in the foundation upon which our faith rests on Jesus Christ, the stone, the cornerstone. Let us be confident in the foundation. And with contrite hearts, let us find strength in seeking forgiveness and giving forgiveness. Humility in living our lives to the glory of the Lord and comforting peace in the sure and certain hope that 
our rescue from the darkness of eternal hell is assured. The brilliant light of eternal life lies ahead. We don't need any certificate of deposit. Nothing we can do to earn it. The only CD that matters has already taken place, and that was Christ's death. And he overcame death. Jesus is still our only lifeline. The gates of kingdom are still open. There is still time. God has done something so marvelous for you. Rejoice in it. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Let us pray. Gracious and most merciful God, Abba, Father, Stay a while with us on this beautiful day which you have made as we feast upon your word. Bring to life in us that which you have inspired men to put down into words that we may know your will, that we may walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We pray in heartfelt and humble thanksgiving in your name. Amen. Now may the grace of God that passes our human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.